G'day punters. Want to win a day at the footy for you and 10 mates in the tab corporate box? Well, make sure you're listening later in the podcast for this week's all-important code word. Full terms and conditions in the show notes. G'day punters and welcome to Inside 50. Nick Quinn, Shane Crawford, as per usual, and our very special guest this week, the 2008 Brownlow medalist, Adam Cooney. Coondog, welcome to the show. Quinny, pleasure to be here. Crawford, always good to see you. It's been a long time since I've seen you, but uh, I see you popping up, doing a lot, um, you know, in the media space. Channel 7, after the footy, I see you pop on there. Good little show. Yeah, it's a good little show. Direct competitor to you at Channel 9, who you're just about running the joint there at the moment. I see you on every program. Um, No, that's what what happens when you get contracted? Yeah, um, they make you work. I would have thought that you'd be smarter than that. You should be doing no. per appearance only. No, well that doesn't happen. Well, I wouldn't have a job. But uh, no, it's it's a great little show because uh, we obviously love our football, but we love talking about football. And um, were you someone, you know, during the younger years, you obviously wanted to play football, love football, but were you someone that just lived and breathed AFL football? No, I wasn't. So growing up in Adelaide, back in the day, you might only get one game on free-to-air a week that you could watch. And I was a massive Carlton supporter, so I only used to see them play every three weeks. I don't think... I might have gone to one game of AFL live, or maybe one or two, growing up, before I actually started playing AFL footy. I never used to go to the footy. I hardly used to watch it. I used to love the Blues, and when they played, I'd try and get to a TV, but I was just outside. Kids used to go outside and play. You remember that? (laughs) That's all we used to do. Yeah, so I wasn't wasn't a massive footy head as such, and I I wasn't certainly when I played either. So I, I... you generally after a game, you'd have to do your, your game review and sit down with a line coach and go through your edits and what you've done right and what you've done wrong. And generally it's sort of 10 things you've done wrong and one thing you've done right. So I didn't enjoy the negativity of that. So I never used to do a game review after. I'm, I might sit down with a line coach for two or three minutes and he'd tell me you know, a couple of things to work on. But I just, for some reason, I just couldn't stand watching myself and those edits. Yep. So I would have been footied out in the first three or four years if I sort of immersed myself into it fully. But but everyone's different. Some people have to watch yeah. every disposal that they have and I just couldn't wait to get away from it after a game and have a couple of days off. Yeah, you need to switch off. But you talk about the Blues. So why you come from Adelaide. Why on earth did you support the Blues? <laughs> I've got no idea. So my, my old man, I think my old man used to go for Sturt in the SANFL and they were blue. I didn't go for the Adelaide Crows when they came in because everyone else jumped on board. I didn't like Port. My brother went for the Kangaroos. I went for Carlton. My old man went for Sturt. So we're all pretty uh, individualistic <laughs> in that area. But um, I used to love watching Cooter run around, Mill Hanna, yep. Matt Clappe, yes. Brad Pierce yes. with the long hair, Lance Schnitzel Whitnell. As well, it's a witness. They were the good, the glory days. Ninety five, I think, was they won the flag in ninety five, and then Adelaide won ninety seven, ninety eight, and the town just turned to turned to shit after that. Uh, did you Did you think about uh, jumping across and getting on the Adelaide Crows bandwagon? Never, no? sacrilege. Oh, really? No, I okay. wouldn't. I would never do that. But, Particularly but, when everyone else was loving them, that just made me hate them even more. Well, it was great when they did enter the competition, but uh, the thing about Adelaide, and I always tell everyone goes, oh, what's Adelaide? Not Adelaide Crows, but what's Adelaide the place like? You know, so what's South Australia like? And I, I think it's a, a very good state. I said they're extremely passionate. If you ever have an event, they all come. Yeah, you know, yeah. you have the cycling events, they... Uh, they come from everywhere. You used to have the Grand Prix till Victoria stole it. Well, that's pretty much it. Probably should have stayed in Adelaide. Clipsal. Uh, it's Adelaide is a great place to go and and have some 
some good quality time, but from a sporting event point of view, Quinny, mm. it's it's a pretty good place to hang out. Yeah, it's just not a great place to live. <laughs> Why is that? Not enough on? Is that said tongue in cheek? Uh, well, I think it is. I think it's, it's probably a bit quiet. Adelaide, and you're right. The, the festivals, like the Fringe Festival, and all the events that they have and they put on, are spectacular. But I think you'd probably get bored there. Having been in Melbourne for so long, with and we talk about events like with the sporting capital of the world, there's always something to do in Melbourne. Whereas Adelaide, it's a great place, and I, I loved working, and uh, I did a little bit of work there. I worked at Jetty Surf for a couple of shifts, and then moved over <laughs> um, to Melbourne when I was 18, and I'm 36 this year, so. 18 years in SA, 18 years in Victoria. I get to actually choose now whether I want to be South Australian or Victorian. And what's the answer? You've got to stick to your roots, don't you? Well, you Even though I'll never go loyal back to the Blues. <laughs> they turn on you. They turn on you, those South Australians. Yeah, I, I think they would. I'd never go back there to live, but I, I've, I always think of myself as a South Australian. I've heard you describe yourself as a naughty boy who was good at football growing up in Adelaide. How accurate's that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's probably underselling at the touch. Naughty, uh, naughty in what way? What, what do you mean? Uh, well, I didn't like authority very much. I didn't like yep. being told what to do. I wasn't a great student. I'm lucky that I actually was drafted. And to be picked number one was even uh, a bigger surprise in itself because I didn't go to the draft camp. I was playing for West Adelaide and I was playing senior footy and we were still in the finals and we made the grand final that year, and I think the draft camp may have coincided that week, so I didn't actually have to go because if I tested, I would have been, I would have, I might have gone on the rookie list. I might have missed out on the draft altogether because I wasn't fit. I was overweight. My skin folds would have been, well, they were uh, 93 when I got picked up. So generally, uh, they have the, the little pinch test. You have seven sites, and I think midfielders, you've got to be under sort of 50 mil of fat of, of the seven sites, and I was double that when I got drafted. So uh, I wasn't fit. I wasn't um, in great shape and I wasn't flexible. I did all the uh, testing that you have. I can't really touch past my knees. So I think if I did, and the 3K time trial would have come last, <laughs> I would have slipped to the 50s or 60s. So, so they, you obviously get drafted number one pick. Um, so did you have meetings? Did you, did they talk about, you know, possible improvement in a lot of areas? Where, where, where did they come Well, they didn't with, know. Well, they, they, it was a guess. Well, they well they just watched back. So back they watched in, the footy and said, yeah, oh, he can play footy. No, we like what we see, but behind the scenes, hang on, he doesn't do anything to actually pretty improve much, himself. Pretty <laughs> much. Well, they didn't actually know. Yeah, they didn't know at that stage. So the under eighteen carnival was played over a week back in uh, well when back in two thousand three when I got drafted. So you play the three games in a week, and then if you I made the all Australian team there for. a a couple of years, so they just sort of thought that yep. I could play. And then because I was playing senior footy at West Adelaide when I was 17, they must have seen a few games there and I, and I, and I went all right. So I only had two meetings with Carlton and the Dogs. And um, I met Peter Road uh, after the after the under-18 carnival, which was in July. And they said, look, it's looking likely that we're going to get the number one draft pick and we want to pick you up. So that was it. So there was no, there was no like psych, psych testing or, or, or anything <laughs> like that. Which is probably a good thing. Which is good. Yeah, which is probably why they why they picked me up. It's amazing, um, you know, the way that recruiting used to be done. You know, back in the day. Yeah, they like, used to look. Oh, no, he can play. Because I can remember one of our recruiters introducing three or four new players. You know, just been drafted, 
And he was going in. And this player, I won't say the, the player's name because I don't want to. Can I guess? Embarrassing. No, no, you won't guess. But he said, um, and this player did this really well. And this is what we love about him. And he's and he's hungry. And he wants to get in there and get the footy. And this player, you know, I went to watch him um, all the way into, um, you know, South Australia, into the bush. And he hadn't touched it until after half time, And it was a muddy day. And the way he went through the middle and he scooped up that ball and he did the most magnificent handball. And I'm thinking, hang on. That's he, why he picked him he's up. He's playing country footy and he hasn't touched it until <laughs> half time. And he's done a beautiful handball and, and well, we picked him with one of our picks. So uh, it was very different back then, the way he had, of drafting. Did he, did he have a decent career, the bloke? Who, no. No. No, no, no. Yeah, but he so was a good fella. Maybe more. Maybe you need to see more than one handball in the bush to Well, we'd someone. like a bit more, yeah, especially in country footy. You've got to have a bit more of an impact yeah. uh, in the game. I think it's important. Well, they look at him now from about 12 years on, don't they? They start sort of going out to the going out to the country and um, local levels to start picking the players out at 12 and 13. So they, they don't miss them now. But, but And they're testing them. And then, you know, some are testing really well. So they're going to go, oh, hang on, we're going to pick him up because he tests really well. But matter of fact, he's actually not a real natural footballer. This yeah. guy, he is a real natural footballer and he's got a lot of upside. So you would have been, uh, well, a pot of gold, get to the Bulldogs. They go, we've taken a chance on this guy, but hang on. His flexibility is no good. He hasn't trained much. <laughs> We've got to get his skin folds right. There's a lot of upside here. Yeah, there's a bit to work with. <laughs> Unfortunately, it took three or four years before I got it all together. Yeah, but it's not easy. You've got to come in, and as you said, you know, you were finding your way. You weren't sure if, you know, you're really 100% committed to it all. And you've got to work your way through it and go, okay, how do I turn myself into a professional unit? Which, credit to yourself, you got there. You got yourself going. Yeah, well, it did take four or five years. And back in the early 2000s, there was still a fair amount of fun to be had. So, And yeah. the guys that I got, like Mitch Hahn, Ryan Hargrave, Brian Harris back then, who's now <laughs> Brian Lake. So these guys like to enjoy themselves off the field as well. And they took us, who were drafted there, under their wing. So we still – and it was I found it hard to get fit um, – to strip down weight and also go out and party with the, with the guys I just got drafted and wanted to um, wanted to get to know. So I found that difficult in my first year. I didn't lose a lot of weight. And because you've still got to eat to keep up your energy, it is quite hard to strip down. So I think I, was, I might have been 90 kilos when I was drafted and played majority of my footy at 85. So it did take three or four years to actually get that fitness up and strip down. But it doesn't happen now. The and kids these days, they're from 15 on, they're the programs that they go through. They are more than well equipped to step in and, and play good footy straight away. Like Sam Walsh is a perfect example of that. Yeah. That's super fit, super professional, and that's just what they do. They strip the children of their of their great years <laughs> and their fun and their lifestyles and force them to become professionals <laughs> at 15, and they can't... They never enjoy themselves. They get into the cocoon of AFL yeah, football and no there's good. nothing else going on in the world. It's all about um, AFL football. But you talk about um, the weight side of things because uh, we, we'll go through your career, but like, obviously you had a knee injury, a pretty severe knee injury, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But you actually, uh, whilst that was happening, you decided, hang on, I need to actually drop a bit more weight to try and take all the the um, you know all the the weight through that knee and the impact through the knee is that right? Yeah, yeah. I th- I feel like I played my best footy at probably 89, 90 kilos, and once I hurt my knee, I ended up playing my last few years at eighty three. So it was a seven kilo difference. I couldn't push anyone yep. off um, in a marking contest, uh, and then ended up playing a little bit more on a wing because I just wasn't strong enough in the contest. But a lot of it was because of my knee because I couldn't really put too much pressure through it. So yeah, yeah. 
I had to strip down to be able to just become a, a running sort of outside player after I hurt my knee. Before you go to the Bulldogs, you were playing senior footy for West Adelaide. You obviously had a terrific year, which led to you going number one in the draft. What was it like both on and off the field during that time? It was pretty hectic uh, on and off the field because I was involved in the, all the South Australian stuff, the under-18s, trying to juggle year 12. When I say trying to juggle year 12, I wasn't really trying to juggle <laughs> trying year to 12. Turn up. I was trying to turn up enough <laughs> so that they wouldn't kick me out of school. Um, and then... West Adelaide was, obviously, when you're playing senior footy, it's pretty professional. Sean Wren was the coach at Westies at that stage, and we were going pretty well. Oh, and he's very serious, Sean Wren. Oh, I was yeah, lucky he's... enough to play it at Hawthorne for a few years. Yeah, and, yeah. And we loved him. You yeah. know, he, he lives up in Byron Bay. He, uh, he's he? got a macadamia farm. Oh, is that what they call them now, the macadamia farms? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> 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 I've got a very funny story about yeah, Sean right. Wren, but I don't think I can go there. Uh, we went and had a, uh, a weekend... Um, sort of at the end of footy season. Anyway, I can't really go there, but um, <laughs> yeah, you I know what you're alluding to. <laughs> um, but he's got a macadamia farm. Yeah. Um, he's bought all his acreage, so he's probably hit the jackpot. Yeah. Um, he's been up there for a long time, but super serious. So from a coaching point of view, you know, there's, there's not much fun being had when he's in charge. No, there wasn't. And the pre-season was brutal. Uh, myself and Bo Waters, who ended up getting drafted to... West Coast, we, we joined the, the senior guys and they made us do every like 100% of the preseason. And there's like seasoned guys who are like 30 years old and big tanks, big weapons of things. And we were trying to keep up with them. It nearly ruined me just in the preseason. And he just wouldn't have a bar of like anyone pulling out of anything. He was a really serious coach. He wanted to um, teach me the defensive part of the game as well, So, which was a serious error. In the end, <laughs> he played me at half back and in the back pocket for the majority of the year, and I just didn't want to be back there. Just put me up in the in the midfield. I ended up getting um, five kicked on me in the grand final. Yep, playing back pocket against a guy called Eddie Sansbury, and I got him drafted. So he wasn't even on the radar, <laughs> and he's bobbed up, kicked five against me in the grand final, and then ended up getting drafted to North Melbourne, I think it was. But but it was pretty it was pretty difficult to balance everything out. And as I mentioned before, when when I had the meeting with Peter Road, and they said that they were going to pick me up yeah, as the number one pick, it was still three months from the draft from Jeez. when they said it. So it was probably the worst thing they could have ever said to me because. From that moment on, I thought that I'd already made it. Like, I thought I was a rock star. So I I really just partied my way through the next three months. And we'd play on the Saturday. I'd be out on the Thursday night until probably about three or four in the morning. Go to school at maybe midday. Oh, try and um, talk talk sweet to the teachers to keep me yep. in class. And then I'd go to footy training on Friday night at Westies and then play sort of still semi-hungover from the... From the front. See, I, I got a feeling the teachers would, they'd be okay with you, you know, because you're, you're a bit cheeky and a bit of fun, and it's like, oh, it's pretty harmless. Yeah, well, that's so, what, you've got to keep them on side that way. Yeah, so I've got a feeling you'd be okay there. You'd find, you'd weave, weave <laughs> your way through and get them on side eventually. Well, I, yeah, I got, a, I got a few suspensions in year 12, but I tried to keep on side, and I had a, ended up having a couple of. Uh, meetings with the principal and my old man and he just sort of ended up saying look if you can just do your best to just keep him here until yeah. October or November then you you won't see him again after that so I'd just smooth it over a couple of times but I, yeah I was pretty I was a naughty little and did boy. you find that um, you know at the time they're like oh we're gonna get rid of Adam Cooney you know he's a disgrace to our school uh, he's misbehaving we're gonna suspend him and then 
Years later, you win the Brownlow medal. Can you come back to the school? <laughs> You're the toast yeah. of the school. Open the new gymnasium. Park <laughs> <laughs> with my name on it. Honest student. Let's talk about when you were at the school. Actually, no, don't. Just, no. Uh, just smile and say, you know, it's great to be yeah. here, be a part of it. So. Speaking from experience there, Crawford, in any capacity, are we? No, not at all. You would have been a, a model student. <laughs> no, I was very much like yourself, just trying to hang in there. Yeah, a bit cheeky. Yep. Did you finish year 12? I, I actually did, oh, yeah. Well I finished. Yeah, it didn't pass. <laughs> I finished. My tertiary recommendation is not high. Yeah, mine is. Um, that's why I chose not to be a lawyer. But, um, <laughs> now look at you, flying. You've got hanging out with Quinny, mate. The the best and wouldn't those lawyers love the- to be a dollar behind him right now? <laughs> <laughs> G'day, punters, for the chance to win a ticket for you and 10 mates into the Tab Superbox. The magic code word this week is tackle. Full terms and conditions in the show notes. There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858. What were your thoughts of the Western Bulldogs when you got to the club at the end of the 2003 season where they'd won just three games? And you had the big hair too, didn't you? you yeah, had had the, the, the big... Sort of half afro, blonde. What bleached. colour was that? What colour was that? It Caribbean was... gold or Auburn sunset? What was yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was... It was Auburn sunset. It was, yeah. It. yeah. Was um, that like a home job? Yeah, that, well, it still is a home job. <laughs> like a supermarket job, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. a little bit of lemon juice squeezed yeah, in man, there. Yeah, man, I used to rock like that. But uh, yours was big. It was a vote getter. <laughs> not in the first year, it wasn't. Not in the first four years, by the sound <laughs> no. of it. <laughs> Took me a while to get going, but well, it was a. Was it was that working at? Was it surf? I worked at Jetty Surf. Oh, Jetty Surf. Is that sort yeah. of? That's the flow surf, on effect. surfy theme that sort yeah, of rolled yeah. into. I actually changed my hair a few times um, before I got drafted. I was black, went jet black at one stage. At, um, gothic. Yeah, that was no. That was my gothic <laughs> phase where I li- used to listen to the heavy metal. Um, yep. Put their black lipstick on and <laughs> sit in my room and cry. <laughs> <laughs> now the dogs were. It was a. It was a strange place because it was a. The facilities weren't ideal. Like they were similar to the facilities that I had at West Adelaide. So like the ice bars there would have uh, had been there since um, Charlie Sutton used to do ice baths, and I'm not sure Charlie did too many <laughs> with the great EJ. To be honest with you, the spa was the same. Like, um, they used to tell stories about um, when EJ and Charlie used to jump in the spa at the end of the game from the fifties. Oh, the, the roof caved in one day when we were doing weights, it nearly killed Acker. Some say it just missed. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing bench press, and the roof just caved in. So the facilities weren't ideal. Um, for a professional AFL club, I thought it was going to be a hell of a lot different. But training was hard, co- considering how unfit I was. And day one, I got to the club. I had no runners. I had no money. <laughs> so the first two weeks of pre-season, because I just thought they'd roll in and they'd give me everything. <laughs> but because it was the dogs, they didn't have a boot, uh, boot sponsor or a runner sponsor. So I had to do the first week of pre-season in... Barefoot? No, no I did. I had K-Swiss <laughs> skateboarding shoes on with like their shoe goo on From the side because I used to yeah. skateboard a bit. So it was like these half broken down skateboard Surely shoes. Surely we can get a photo of that. Oh, somewhere. there might be some uh, around the place. And we did um, 10 100s to, as a warm-up on the first morning and I got through five, vomited and Ooh. went and hid in the toilets. 
because I thought I just can't I can't get through this <laughs> and I was trying to hide obviously what sort of hideous condition that I was in but after five 100s and they saw me vomiting I think they thought pretty quickly what the hell have we done here did you know you were out of shape when you started though or were you a bit ignorantly blissed to the whole situation well yeah I was just I didn't really think about it what a moron! Like when you look, when you think back at it now, like I'm well, going to an AFL club, and I spent the last three months of my life drinking and not training. Like yeah, but, but you got to train to get better. So you know, in the oh, yeah, you don't want to go game, there at your peak, do you? No, you you want to go there, and then you want to build into it. Yeah. But, um, the problem back then, when you were starting, was it was just flat out right from the yeah. the start. Whereas these days. It's carefully building upon different fitness levels, individual programs, and everything's changed. Whereas back in your day, you're into it. Mm. Circuits, doing this, overtraining, just got to try and survive. Yeah, 100% of the program we used to do, whereas now they do probably 50 or 60%. So, yeah, I, I made a lot of mistakes. And it, it did it cost me probably three or four years of my career in terms of consistency because if I just trained – even two or th- even three days a week leading into it, I would have been much better placed. If, if um, you could just have buy a some, some sneakers, <laughs> if I could just buy some <laughs> some runners, I would have been okay. I, don't, I think I had a hole in the top of the <laughs> shoes. I had, uh, no, I had to get my um, manager to give me a hundred bucks when I got to Melbourne because I didn't have a cent in my pocket. Uh, then, come to think of it, what was my old man thinking? He just said, like, I got drafted, right. sent me away, didn't pack my bags for me, didn't give me any money, just said, oh, thank God he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, despite those setbacks off the field, the first year under Peter Rowe, you play 19 games. Unfortunately, the coach doesn't see the year out, but yeah. for all your self-criticisms, you still played 19 games in your first season of AFL. Yeah, I played round one. I'm not sure how. <laughs> it's astonishing, really, that I got picked. And I've uh, a lot to thank for uh, Peter Rode for actually playing me. Because it may have cost him his job because I wasn't ready to play and there would have been other players uh, on the fringe that were frustrated and angry that I was getting a game over them when they're probably trying to play for their careers. But he knew that um, we were going to struggle that year as a side and just to get as many senior games into me um, as possible would have held me in good stead going forward. So it could probably cost us games. It probably cost him his job in the end because I wasn't ready to play at that stage in terms of fitness. I played a bit at half forward and didn't really have an impact on any games until later in the year. It took me 15 or 16 games to feel like I could have almost um, an impact. I think we played Hawthorne one day in my first year and I kicked a couple and had 14 or 15 disposals and I thought, oh, hang on, maybe maybe I, I feel a bit more comfortable here. And then the back end of the year I played some okay games, ended up getting um, a Rising Star nomination and then thought, well, okay, maybe uh, maybe I do belong at the level and, and then... Peter Road got sacked after that. Bloody <laughs> <laughs> Adam Cooney. Yeah, he's cost me. He probably looks back on it now and think, why did I play that little shit? <laughs> <laughs> and one man that no doubt called you that a lot in the next six years was Rocket Rodney Ede. He came in. What were your first impressions of him? Well, he was okay at first because he was he was really calm in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes that we met him. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. He was, a, he was a great coach to me because he understood what I needed to do individually to play my best footy, and not every coach is like that. So he knew what players like Brian Lake, Ryan Hargrave, myself, Matthew Boyd, Daniel Cross, that he knew different personalities and what made them tick and how to get the best out of them. So he would give me... Um, 
some nice leeway to to do what I needed to do to get myself up and play my best footy. And then clearly, I played my best um, footy under Rocket in, in sort of 20, 21, 22 years of age when we were making prelims and, and finishing top four. And oh, he's a psycho. There's no doubt about it. But he was a psycho as soon as you stepped onto the training track and as soon as you stepped onto the field to play. During the week, he was unbelievably relaxed, unless we got belted by 100 points or something like that. Then he'd be a bit frosty on Monday or Tuesday and even into Wednesday sometimes. But generally off the track, he was really relaxed. He'd come in, have a joke with the players and, and muck around and certainly have a gag with, with us. Um, there would be times where... He, he was a prankster in his Hawthorne days. So yeah. He, oh, he's, yeah. He's, he's known as a prankster. So I reckon, he's a prankster. I reckon he'd, he'd get you. He'd probably got you better than a lot of the other players. Yeah, I think he, he sort of had that side to him. Yeah, he did. He, he understood me really well, and I was um, grateful that he let me um, go about the things individually that I needed to do to play well. So he would, like, at quarter time, if we were going no good, he would give an almighty spray to a player. Will Minster. So, well, generally, it, it might have been Will a couple of times, but, but generally Brian was, was in the gun a yep. lot of the time. And then he would give an almighty spray and everyone would be standing there. Like, All right, we've got to respond here. And then we'd go to walk off and he'd grab me by the Guernsey as I was walking out to the middle and he'd say, do you like that one? <laughs> uh, he'd give me a little wink every now and then because I'd be at the back. Because be, sometimes he'd make jokes when he was giving uh, an almighty yep. spray. And he would know that they're funny and he would know that the players can't laugh. And I'd be sitting at the back just trying not to lose it. And then he'd just, uh, at the end of it, just give me a little wink and they say, that was a good spray, wasn't it, Coon? <laughs> Unless you're in it, in, in the middle of one yourself. And you know, were you a idea. few times? I had a couple. I had a couple from Rocket. I had one with, uh, with a miscommunication where we played in Perth, uh, Free or West Coast, I'm not too sure. And he got word that I went out the night before a game. Which wasn't true. I was out, but I wasn't like out at a nightclub or partying or anything like that. Farron Ray was from Western Australia, so we just went out and caught up with a couple of his friends. Nothing, didn't drink alcohol or anything, but yeah. got back to the hotel at maybe 11 o'clock the night before. And um, the president, I think it was David Smorgan, so he was the rat. He, he must have seen me coming back into the hotel and told Rocket that I'd gone out the night before and maybe left it like that so Rocket's thinking that I've had a night out before we're going to play and always started in the middle of the ground first centre bounce and he came up to me before the game I'm going to start you on the wing I want you to start on the interchange bench side and I thought that's a bit odd why would he do that five seconds into the game the runner comes out Coons onto the bench so I was thinking I haven't even had a chance to stuff up here so onto the bench on the phone and I picked up the phone and I'm not he Dropped the C-bomb five, six, maybe seven times to me before he said anything else. And he's like, and I said, what have I done? And then he said, I know you've gone out the night before a game. You better have the best game of your life. And then just threw the phone down. I didn't have a chance to explain what I'd done to him. And then went again at half time to me and Farron about what, us going out the night before. I ended up having a stinker and then uh, because it, I was so rattled yeah, after yep. that that I didn't know what was happening. So I had a chat to him after the game and we eventually smoothed it over. But there was a bit of miscommunication because of that. But he called me a see you next Tuesday <laughs> eight times in a row before he said anything else. Well, it, it's it's weird that he, he wouldn't grab you before the game and just say, yeah, listen, listen you know, mate. Mate, where's Farron Ray? Get here. Yeah, what's, he what's the story? wanted to make a real example yeah, of me. But he says he can't remember that. Yeah, right. 
coaches can't remember a lot of things, but they uh, they certainly get uh, involved in the heat of the moment, and it's it's definitely up there and about. So these days, players are allowed to ask, "How would you like your your feedback um, mm. in front of the group? Can I yell at you if I'm getting angry at quarter time and half time? What would your you know comment be back to Rodney Eade? Uh, if if he asked me how what yeah, my yeah. like I, you know I don't want to I want you to play well so how can I go about it when I need to get a message straight through you yeah I would say I'd be happy to um, be made an example of in front of the group if that was going to better the team because then I know he would come up to me after and say look you know <laughs> you just got to lift a bit son yeah but that was that that was it's so different now isn't it I mean players get asked and get so many choices whereas back in our day if you weren't doing the right thing you would cop one of the great sprays, and then if you didn't respond, well, you're out of the team. Whereas now you've got to be, you've got to be cuddled, and it's all about um, how players receive their feedback. Delicate. How much yes. time they get off now? Is a lot of time. Yes, I know. It's a, it's a changed world, but it helps with their football. Half gets days right. and full day. They have to be out of the club by midday, so they can freshen up on some days and full days off here. And <sighs> we played in the wrong era. <laughs> or some say we played in the right era. Well, I, I think so. From a social point of view, you still got to live life and, yeah. and you know, some were a bit mobile more professional phones. than others. Yeah, they didn't. No they weren't exist. The first mobile phone that came in was that big brick one. <laughs> Do you remember? Like, <laughs> that the one that Dipper had on the boundary? <laughs> no, pretty much. Remember I remember some of my Richard teammates would rock around and they'd have, you get in their car and they had this like this huge brick. <laughs> yeah. And they go, I'm just going to make a phone call. And it's like, wow, he's got a phone. That's How unbelievable. But uh, yes, that was back in the day. But it was back when you had to do the the uh, dial phone. Oh, you put your finger in and, yep. and around you go. That was the only way of communicating. Way back then, Quinny. Back in the good old days. <laughs> I'm older than you. You can't be reminiscing that much. <laughs> so I feel old. Things are starting to go well for the doggies under Rocket Eid. Let's skip ahead to 2008, your breakout year, all Australian and most memorably a Brownlow medal. It's something very, very special. I saw you two before we started recording just comparing the Brownlows. I had to wait outside in the rain by myself, <laughs> but you let me back in to have a chat at the end of it. They all look the same. Talk the us through that 2008 at the start of the year and when did you realise this was going to be a very special year for you personally? Well, I didn't realise it was going to be a special year at all until after they read out my name that I won the Brownlow. But I have a lot of credit that needs to go to Brad Johnson and Rowan Smith because we mentioned my lack of professionalism back. I think they'd had enough by about three or four years in and said to me, look, we're going to train with you in the off-season. This is the end of my fourth year and we're going to try and get you as fit as you can. So they would pick me up 5.30, 6 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, in the off season and take me training and took me training and I got myself into a um, pretty good condition before pre-season started. So by the time that um, we got two or three weeks into pre-season, I was the, the fittest that I'd ever been by a fair margin because of those guys. So I'll always be thankful uh, to those two for dragging me out of bed and actually getting me training because I didn't do a lot before then, maybe once or twice a week in the off season. So they got me um, fit and ready to to run out games and yeah it was maybe three weeks a month into pre-season where I thought well I'm, I'm gonna have a pretty good year here and um, we played Adelaide I think it was Adelaide round one might have been Jono's 300th and I had a really good game um, and maybe had 25 or 30 and thought well hang on um, I'm on here and then just had one of those years and it just rolled on from there and this might sound simple but how much did being fit really help you well, it helps you run, doesn't it? Well, it but mentally, yeah. physically, like, yeah. do you feel like, is it, what kind of 
mental differences it make knowing you can run the full game, you can do more, and you yeah. probably moved a lot better than you'd ever moved before as well. Yeah, it it certainly helps because obviously the the more contests you get to, the more sharing you get. So, and I used to get tagged a bit in my third and fourth year and really battled with it. And when in my fifth year when I was getting tagged, I found that it wouldn't really matter who I played on. I could not outrun them, but sort of keep up with what they were doing and are still strong enough to be able to push them off at stoppages and get the footy. Whereas prior to that, it'd be so knackered when just getting to a stoppage that you don't have the energy to actually push off someone and then get the footy and burst away. So the main difference was I could get to more stoppages, feel fresher and feel stronger to be able to either run off a tag or run with a tagger or push off and, and be able to still have that burst of speed away. Whereas before I would get to a stoppage and that was, that was as much as I could do was just to get there rather than have that second win to be able to burst away. And then just to get back into defence as well, it's amazing that you, you go from having 20 disposals to having 33. If you can get back into defence and actually help out there and be an, a spare number or run around the back of Brian after he's taken a <laughs> contested mark and get the cheapie. So that's just well, a good way of getting your numbers the up. Ball down the, the field. Well, you don't so know exactly Brian, right. You don't want one of his helicopters going down Please there. don't kick the ball long. Kick it short. Yeah, so it's, it. yeah, well, it just helped in that capacity to be able to cover more ground and feel more confident that you could actually burst away from players. Always tough against like the better taggers. Like Cameron Ling, who was unbelievably endurance and just so strong. You're always going to have a tough battle against players like that. But I felt so much more confident leading in that I was fitter. It's a tough job, though, being a tagger, when you think about Shocking it. Shocking job. Like I've got to follow you all day. I've got to run when you want to run, rest when you want to rest. Um, I've got to concentrate and be all over you. Not only that, I've got to watch the footy. It's, it's not an easy job, especially if, if you're playing um, a side that seems to be winning and... and got teammates that are blocking and helping it's not an easy job there's some um you know mentally tough those taggers the very best taggers are just mentally tough and just wide very different to a lot of other players and no one ever got drafted to be a tagger everyone probably dominated their junior footy and Although, got drafted do you know and what? i've got a feeling this year there might be a couple because i think they're sort of coming back in vogue, back in vogue. a little bit just just each team needs to have a really good run with type player um, you yeah. got to have the option, don't you? Yeah, so it's good to, I think, have you up your sleeve. So that, that's great for those players because they n- wouldn't normally get drafted, but players who I call them blue-collar workers who just go to work and get the job done and do everything for the team. And as a man who got tagged more than anyone throughout his career, exactly what Adam just said about the importance of fitness and how it did help with those second, third and fourth efforts. Yeah, well, he's right. Getting you got to get yourself to the contest or, okay, there's another boundary throw-in or the ball's moved quick down the field. I've got to get down there and be that extra number. Yes, I can get there. And Adam was saying he was getting there in early years, but then he's fatigued Mm. and his concentration's not there. And all he's thinking about is... I need a breath. I need to recover. I'm not. I can't go and get that footy. Whereas when he got himself, you know, obviously as fit as he possibly could, he gets there and then he wants to get the footy. He wants to be involved in the next bit of play. That, that's a massive difference. And the night itself, the 2008 Brownlow, off to a strange start. Andrew Demetrio thought it'd be a good idea to read out the round two votes before the round one votes. Yeah, but that was the end of him. <laughs> that was the start of his demise. Once things settled down, walk us through the night. I'll walk you through the day if you want. Uh, we started at 10 a.m. because it was Mad Monday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was the, Mad at Monday. At the pub, we'd lost another uh, – well, we lost the first of, of three prelims leading in, so we're all devastated. But I'm pretty sure we played on the Friday night. 
And that's a long a long weekend before you go into the Brownlow itself. And you've got to have your first beer consumed before 10 o'clock. And is there a theme? Did you go with a yes. theme? Because you normally have a dress-up yes. theme of some yeah. sort. Well, were you dressed as something classy, uh, no doubt? I was dressed as a giant sperm. <laughs> <laughs> And and why was that? Complete with the the big tail at the back. (laughs) The boys are pulling on my tail during the day. I don't know why. It might have been been an S theme or something like that. So I was dressed as a giant sperm throughout the day and then um, left the pub about four in the afternoon completely sideways. Trying to trying to swim back to <laughs> trying to swim back home to put my tuxedo on, yeah. so I went from giant sperm to did to anyone tuxedo. pull you up and say, "Hey, you might get a few votes tonight. You need to be in some kind of shape just in case." No, no. no. Uh, Haley, where was, my, where my was, wife pulled me up when we got home <laughs> and said, "I'm going to go by myself. You just need to stay home." But uh, it was a blue carpet that year, and I remember I had one or two interviews. Leading in before we even get inside, you know, you got to do a little parade before you walk into the Palladium and go up the stairs. And word filtered down the line pretty quickly that um, that I shouldn't be interviewed by anyone. And Haley sort of dragged me up the stairs, sat in my seat, and then it's a long wait, isn't it? Yeah. For, but when you get up the stairs at Palladium to when they start the count, it's probably two two and a half hours. So you can actually tip a few more in then. And I was in absolute, I was in no state to be winning any sort of medal that evening, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're right. They read out the the second round first, and I thought to myself, if I get three in the first game, I might be a chance. And then I didn't get any votes, and I thought, well, I played pretty well that day. I should have got the three. I didn't get any. I'm no chance here. And then obviously it went back. They recounted the votes, and I got the three. So I got off to a pretty good start. And from there, it's um, it was a bit of a blur. But I had a few. I had a few um, waters throughout the evening. Um, to try and sober up, but the damage had been done already. Yeah. <laughs> did you? How did you recover? I mean, did you have a sleep when you got home for an hour or two? Because it sounded I didn't like have time. You were doing well just to get there. I did well just to get there. I was under the table at one stage, just having a, a minor kip. <laughs> but the 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 more the evening went on, and I was in contention, the more excited I got, and then I, I sobered up completely. Through throughout the last three or four rounds, there was, I think, four rounds to go, and the, you have a sixty to ninety second ad break where you can go to the bathroom and come back. And I went to the bathroom, came back at about round eighteen, and they shut the doors because I didn't get back in time. And the security guard said, "No, you have to wait until I, th- I don't know if it was going to be the end of the count or another yep. two. He said, "No, you've got to wait. You can't come back in." And I said, "Look, mate, I, I really need to get back to my table. I need to see what's going on." And the security guy just said, "Nah." I said, "Listen, mate, I'm a chance to win the Brownlow here. You got to let me back in." Yeah. So he sort of slid me in, and I think you can see me weaving my way <laughs> through the table, sort of crawling back to my seat um, because I nearly missed the end of the count. Imagine wow. poor Bruce looking That's, for you here out the back. I was quarters that year. I was quarters. Yeah. Quarters had the had the gig that year. Would have been a bit awkward had I won and I'm waiting outside. So you win the Brownlow medal um, easily. Easily, yeah. yeah. Did you? Who was who was runner up? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was. Uh, well, Richo was the crowd favourite on the oh, night. Oh yes. So yeah. every time Richo would get a vote, uh, the crowd would erupt, and every time I got one, they would boo. So that was a bit disheartening. But it was Simon Black, uh, I think Gary and Richo were all in contention. Yep, yep. So you win the Brownlow medal. So was was this a dream of yours as a young kid, obviously, Barry for the Blues? Did you ever think about winning a Brownlow medal? Not really. No, it's not something you 
aspire to. I think it's definitely premiership success is is first, but. I didn't even think I was going to win it on the night. I think I was paying about fifteen bucks, so it was a bit of chicken on the bone there. I should have, I should have backed myself. <laughs> a couple of my friends backed me pre-season. One of my mates had a hundred and fifty to one, I think, oh, oh, had a hundred on it, Hello? and lost his ticket. Oh no, he lost his lost ticket. his ticket. Yeah, so he still never claimed it. He still didn't put never it in the claim claimed form? it. No, nah, right? No, nah, in Adelaide, he, he must have got his ticket and then threw it away after I had a stinker of a game or something, and yeah, it cost him a bit of cash. So I never thought that I was going to win. Obviously, I didn't have a speech repaired um, because of the junk that spewed out of my mouth when I was up there. So in, looking in hindsight, I probably should have prepared something. But then that makes you look like a bit of a goose, doesn't it? Well, when you pull out your your card. And well, there's not many people that pull out a card, is there? I think there's been a couple. Has there? I think yeah, Gary right. did. Gary Gary had a few, a list of people oh, to did thank, he? but he was obviously oh, right, a dollar short price favourite. Yep. Where I was, I was fifteen on the night, so I obviously I didn't su- think I was going to win it. I suppose it's just preparation, just in case you just don't want to get nervous up there and not thank the the right people. Yeah, maybe well, I didn't maybe thank the coach. I don't think. <laughs> didn't you? I don't think I thanked uh, Rocket. No. I thank my nana. By the sounds of it, you uh, you did quite well just surviving the night. Yeah, <laughs> and think, getting yourself there. I after. think there's a common theme. <laughs> Floating through here, it's about me, isn't it? I'm much better now. So I've got so my act together now. You, you win the Brownlow medal. Um, obviously, your, your table's going berserk, you know, all your teammates and their partners. So what happens after? So you obviously get taken away and, you know, you do a bit more media. But then do all your teammates come for Mad Monday and, and <laughs> meet you along the way somewhere? They did. Yeah, so you get ta- ushered into a back room where um, the table was waiting and, um, and everyone, the president, coach, had a couple of drinks. And then the after party, we went went down to the after party and all of my teammates rocked up in full costume. So I had to, and they, none of them were getting in because <laughs> for obvious reasons. A few of them had glitter on their face. Yes, yep. Not sure why, not sure where they'd been, <laughs> not sure where they'd been before. But the Brad Johnson again. <laughs> they were in a state, a lot of them, and uh, they're yeah, all dressed up. So I had to sort of roll them through thinking I was a celebrity and then got pulled up by an AFL official not too long after that who grabbed a drink out of my hand, replaced it with a bottle of Mount Franklin and said, no more for you. You've got media commitments the next day. So that was it. That was the end of it. And you didn't toe the line, surely? I did. You, I don't know why. I think it was time for bed at that stage anyway. <laughs> but it was an early start the next day and they sort of, yeah, they banned me from from consuming any more alcohol, which was probably a good idea in the end. Yeah, we'll see. You probably started Friday night and that was in the early hours of Tuesday morning. Yeah. That's probably a, a good result. Just looking back at that, on a board from the 2008 Brownlow, Adam Cooney victorious on 24 votes, one vote ahead of Simon Black and two votes ahead of Gary Ablett and Matthew Richardson and a further vote back to Adam Goods and Lance Franklin. So, so many superstars up there and a mm. magnificent achievement. What did winning the Brownlow do to your life? Did you notice it changed it almost overnight? Yeah, well, it's probably the reason I've still got a job in the media, to be honest with you. Uh, it did change a lot, particularly because I had a lot of incentives built into my contract around the Brownlow and because... Are you serious? Yeah. Did you? Yep. I was yeah. one of the very rare ones. So I had, because I was had an average sort of three or four years and the clubs thought that I had a bit of potential, I didn't, I got a three-year deal and I didn't, I wasn't on huge money because I hadn't performed to the level that I deserved it. So my manager sat down and said, look, how about in this three-year deal, we'll put a clause in for Brownlow and All-Australian and, and then it accumulated... Yep. Over the next three years. 
and the club said, no dramas. We'll, we'll put those in. First year of my of my contract, it triggered the Brownlow clause and then it actually um, added on to my next two years. So I, I don't know if it completely screwed the salary cap for a, a few years there, but I didn't really care. So in that way, it changed a fair bit because I was able to um, pay a fair chunk of my house off. But then the pressure comes from that and I, I wasn't able to replicate that year um, and get even close to it really after that because I hurt my knee in 2008 and then people were expecting me to go on and play and be one of the all-time greats after um, only winning a Brownlow in my fifth year and I just wasn't able to get to, to that level. So the, I felt the pressure, the external pressure, I felt the internal pressure and then I was almost the highest paid player at the club and, and the output wasn't there. So it all sort of started to cave in on itself and became really difficult for three or four years there. Before we talk about those knee injuries, let's talk about the doggies. As you said, the club made three prelim finals and the one that probably hurt the most and was the closest was in 2009 up against St Kilda in a terrific arm wrestle. The dogs start so well but unfortunately kick 7-11 to go on and lose by seven points. Do you look back on that night as the one that got away? Yep. I think everyone does that watch that game. It was our best opportunity. I think we would have gone on and, and won a flag after that if we got over the top of St Kilda. I think we would have been riding high and the momentum would have would have seen us through, but uh, it wasn't to be. I remember certain um, aspects of that game that like, still sort of wake you up in the middle of the night and you think, well, why did I kick it there? And um, Sam Fisher was a spare late in the last quarter and we just kept bombing the ball into him and he kept taking intercept mark after intercept mark. Gia missed a goal on the left. Lindsay Gilby missed a goal in the last quarter, running inside 50 that he just doesn't ever miss. So there's so many opportunities um, in those games, but in the end we didn't deserve to win and I was getting tagged by Clint Jones that night and got off to a really poor start. I think I might have only had it once or twice in the first quarter and when you come in at quarter time, you only had two in a prelim final. It's the, the mental demons start to really weigh on you, and you think, well, it's a long way back from here. So I had to try and work myself back into the game when someone's hanging off you. It's always difficult, but it was, it was one of the toughest games that I've ever, probably the toughest game that I've ever played in. Great game of footy, and um, but you always rue those missed opportunities. And every now and then we bring it up in the group chat about Lindsay missing those goals and Gia and <laughs> me kicking it to Sam Fisher three or four times in the last quarter. And Nick Rewalt taking a dive? After half-time with Brian, yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, would have got three weeks for it now, you would think, for staging. It was, a, it was a complete... And when goals were so hard to come by in that game, it was a real arm wrestle, as you mentioned, that uh, it was a shame that we started the third quarter like that with a, a little nudge and then Nick went down. And, um, Dick, uh, he might have kicked a snag off the back of that. Um but I think he would – I wonder if he's mentioned anything about it since because if he's had his time again, surely he's just got to stand up in those moments. Nick, poor from you, Nick. <laughs> Cost us a spot in the grand final, Nick. And the fact well, you that can you get away a, with it back then. And the fact yeah. that he played a pretty good game. He was outstanding. <laughs> G'day, punters, for the chance to win a ticket for you and 10 mates into the Tab Superbox. The magic code word this week is – Tackle. Full terms and conditions in the show notes. There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. 
Tab. Long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help. 1-800-858-858. On the back of those Bulldogs prelims, unfortunately it sort of did come unstuck pretty quickly at the end. You went so close on a few occasions and then unfortunately the end did come quite suddenly because you had such a terrific group of senior players. Well, I think we're seeing that with Richmond now. It's hard to stay up for so long and I know Dustin Martin is injured but a lot of people tipped us to win the flag in 2011 so they thought that the run would continue after getting so close but in the end it's it just got to a point where I think the group was just fatigued from staying at that level for so long and it can happen happens to just about everyone we've seen teams and I know that we didn't win three grand finals but we played in three big prelims and even that fatigue of getting there and um, over a period of time weighs on you. We've seen teams win three flags, but no one's really got to that fourth yet. So three is the tipping point at the moment, whether in a a prelim or or winning grand finals to try and maintain that level of consistency is is pretty hard as a team. We've seen individuals do it, but as a collective, it, um, it has become really difficult to stay at that level for so long. And then, yeah, really. After that, it was it was a struggle with with Rocket started to get um, angry and players started to lose faith in in what he was delivering slightly. And when that happens, it reverberates through a group. And then uh, it was time for a change after twenty twelve. When you say started to get angry, we didn't start to get angry. You got angry even angrier. <laughs> But was it losing its effect a little bit, like you'd cop a spray at quarter time at a player and the team would lift, but was it just white noise and a madman screaming after a while? I think naturally that's what happens. It loses its edge after a long period of time. And it, I still wanted Rocket to keep coaching, but by that stage I think the group needed a different voice um, because it can get stale. And, uh, Brit- yeah. and um, there's a famous... Um there's a famous spray with Will Minson, um, you know, allegedly. Rocket denies that that was actually well, his voice. Well, it, it does the rounds. It's very, very. <laughs> Sounds popular. very, very lucky. Um, you know, so when you hear a coach like that who who seems like they're out of control, they're getting you know Leon Cameron, the assistant there, <laughs> just saying you need to calm down. We can't concentrate in here. You need to calm down. That's when you pretty much know. Oh, listen. We, th- we think we're at the end of the road here. Yeah. When the assistant <laughs> coaches can't think, it's started to get pretty tough, isn't it? So, uh, poor Will. Um, we say he's in he's in one of my group chats, actually, and I think we we play that. To, we send that to him about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> just so he doesn't forget about that. But that's just what he was. That's just what he was like, Rocket, when he was up in the box, and um, we used to sit in the stats box next to him, and you could still hear him as as clear as day. So, it wasn't for the faint-hearted. Um, if you wanted to sit there and you'd you'd hear exactly what he what he thought about some of the players out there, but then he would go down. He wouldn't be that demonstrative to um, the guys out there. Generally, I mean, it did happen every now and then, but that was an exceptional case with Will. I think he wanted him to run, didn't he? At that stage, <laughs> he was pretty keen for Will to run well, and then to get off the ground. He's uh, he's flying planes now, didn't he? Hasn't he got his pilot license, Will uh, Minson? Possibly. I know he's an engineer and he's. Working pretty hard. I think he needs a spell too. Well, he's he's working way too hard at the moment. Yeah, right. Well, you need to run a po- podcast, footy players, and what they're doing there. Every week you drop in some gold about what a player's well, doing no, post footy. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got his his pilot license because I thought oh, it'd be a good little interview to do. You know, I'd whilst he's taken off, <laughs> just hoping that he he knows what he's doing. But um, like the thing about the coaches, and you see a lot of the coaches these days, they don't often let current day players, especially back in our day, players come into the boxes because 
it's vicious in yeah. there. A lot of things get said in the heat of the moment, and they don't want that being relayed back to those players and because when a lot of it field, can be pretty negative. When you're out on the field two weeks later and you muck up a kick, you look up at the box and you think, <laughs> he's, he's saying those things about me that he said about Will Minson two weeks ago. Yeah. can get in your you head. You need a thick skin. Brendan McCartney comes in to replace Rodney Eade as the senior coach and a couple of years, unfortunately, things don't trend too well. Walk us through the end of 2014. 2014 was, yeah, it was, it was probably, the, it was the toughest time that I've been involved in at the Dogs. So there was a lot made about um, senior players leaving. I left um, Sean Higgins, Ryan Griffin, who was the captain at that stage. So things went really pear-shaped in sort of the middle of 2014 with Brendan McCartney and a so, lot of... So why? why? Like, because, you know, like these are players who are really sort of you know, a part of the fabric at the football yep. club, you know. You used to speak about your captain as well, Ryan Griffin. He was a good player, I'll tell you. At his very best, he was a very good player. Mm. So what so what went wrong? What happened? Well, I think he was a I think he was a different senior coach to what he was as an assistant coach, um, Brendan. And he a lot of the the a lot of the younger players really struggled with um, the messaging and how he how it's it's hard to explain what sort of coach he was but he was so um, single-mindedly focused about how people had to be so so when I talk about Rocket um, letting knowing different individuals and how they needed to tick so Brendan wanted me to be like Matthew Boyd and he wanted everyone to be like Matthew Boyd and he wanted everyone to be um, like Joel Selwood and it just wasn't going to work and some of and the meetings were stressful and younger players um, who were shy, uh, were speaking up in meetings and getting the wrong answers, and, and it it all became very stressful. And we're, we're those guys who you mentioned, Sean, myself, um, and Griff in the leadership group. A lot of younger players were coming to us and didn't want to train and didn't want to go um, to training and were stressed out about speaking up in meetings for getting the wrong answer. So, like it lost its it lost its in it wasn't enjoyable. It lost the messaging. I think that that Macca was was trying to portray, and the group just really sort of fell apart in the middle of 2014. And there was, so I had my exit meeting at the end of yeah at the end of that year, and I had another year left to go run on my contract. So I just signed a two year deal at the end of 2013, and I'd had a pretty average year in 2014. Didn't play that well, and sat down in my exit meeting, and I was told. Basically, that I was that my career was either over or I would be playing VFL next year because there was no spot for me. Um, but, but going you, forward, you had that ongoing knee issue. Oh, yeah, I had which, that. Yeah, so I, I so, did that so in '08. So yeah, so what was wrong with that knee? Because it, it became something that you had to try and nurse the whole way through. Yeah, so so I fractured my knee in the first final in '08. Um, so I just split the side of the patella, and then. Because we were playing finals, I sort of played the next couple of weeks with local in the knee. And then after we lost uh, the prelim in 08, I went in for surgery. Uh, that yeah, straight, pretty much straight after, I had the um, side of the knee uh, taken out. Well, the, the, the crack was sort of shaved away. Um, so I was missing a little bit of the kneecap there. And I just damaged all the articular cartilage underneath the kneecap. So and once your articular cartilage is, is gone... It's when you got bone on bone, osteoarthritis straight away. So, so basically, it just shredded all the cartilage away, and the pain after that was 
it got pretty significant and I still had a fair bit of pain on the outside of the kneecap from when they shaved off the bit of bone. So it was really tender so, to sort of tap on and then the damage from under it um, I really struggled with. Uh, 2009, 2010, it was okay because I was sort of getting by. I was limping a lot and it sort of changed the, my running gait. So everything fell apart after that. I didn't have a soft tissue injury in the first five years of my career. I hurt my knee and then I was pinging hammies um, going to bed at night at times. So it just, it basically got to a point where it was so much pain that I couldn't do a bodyweight squat in 2011. So I was I was going to retire uh, in 2012 because I just couldn't, like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't run. I was playing at half forward and getting 10 or 12 kicks a game and just no value to the team at all. And, and I really struggled with that. So I was looking at retiring and then I found an article on ESPN about the great, late, great Kobe Bryant who went and saw a doctor over in Germany um, and Dr. Peter Whaling, his name was, and he was the um, inventor of this new therapy called Regenekine, which is now Orthokine. So they've got it at, at uh, in Melbourne now, um, and it works. Is, is, is that yeah? Is that it's an like, injection into the the joints yeah. or into the? It's an injection. Into the gap, so it doesn't have bone on bone. Yeah, yeah, but it, it doesn't actually. It's not a cure, but so I went there. It's and, a lubrication. Yeah, it's it? a little bit like a lube. Yeah, um, so I went uh, over to Germany, and prior to going over there, I would have to have maybe four or five painkillers, um, half an hour of physio um, on the knee, and then forty minutes of warming up before I actually felt that I was able to to run. And and even and even then, I wouldn't be running pain free. So I went and saw the doctor over there. Did you um, speak much German? Uh, no, I didn't speak any German, and right. I was by myself. But so how does he communicate? Well, English to you? is a universal language. Well, not over there. Uh, he so. thankfully he could speak English, so he didn't need to speak really. He just so they take uh, took the blood from the arm. Uh, they there's, there's platelets involved, spinning, heating, centrifugal, that sort of stuff. And then I had five injections over. Five days into the knee, and the first three days it was uh, had no effect on my knee at all. I was still um, in a pretty significant amount of pain. And then the fourth day I had the injection and then sort of walked around Dusseldorf in Germany <laughs> by myself, and then it started to feel a little bit better, started to get a bit more improvement, and then went back to my hotel and did a few body weight squats and it was probably felt about 60% better in terms of pain and then went back, had the fifth injection, and then flew to London. We had the exhibition game there, met all my teammates and ended up putting my runners on and going for a run around Hyde Park with no painkillers. Finally got yourself some runners. Finally got some runners. <laughs> Didn't have the K-Swiss on there. I went and it was not pain-free, but it was. I, I would say it was about 80% yeah. better in terms of the pain management. And it only lasted, it lasted about two years, but that sort of saved my yeah. career and I was able to play some okay footy in, in 2013 but at the end of 2014 it sort of um, the pain was back to a level where I sort of was really struggling again Could you have gone back or was it a one trick sort of thing? Well they do they ended up I ended up getting some more treatment in Melbourne which is similar but I found it wasn't as uh, effective as as Doc or the old Doc over in Dusseldorf but I had to shell out about ten thousand euro to get that done, <laughs> so it wasn't going, wasn't a repeat trip for me. But um, but I kept getting injections in the knee over the next over the last sort of few years of my career, and it helped a little bit. But once your cartilage is gone, there's nothing you can really do about it. Back to that two thousand and fourteen fiasco. The club moves on. You, Griffin, 
Higgins, so it appears like they're going to stick with the coach. Then they sack the coach. Mm. What were you thinking then? <laughs> that was funny. I was, I was actually in a meeting with North Melbourne at that stage uh, with Brad Scott, and halfway through the meeting, there was a knock on the door. Someone came in and said, um, "The coach from the Western Bulldogs has just been sacked. Do you still want to trade, or do you want to go back to the Bulldogs?" And I was sort of looking at Scotty, and he was looking at me, and I sort of said, "Well, it's too late now. Um, I'm out." They uh, they didn't want me there, regardless of if it was Brendan McCartney, the coach, or uh, or not. I think my time at the Dogs was up. But Jason McCartney was the list manager, and he was pretty keen to um, to get a trade to get a pick for me and I don't no one saw what um, was going to happen obviously in the future at the dogs but I think it got to the stage where the club had realized that um, that Brendan wasn't going to be the right man for the job you end up choosing Essendon they say in life sometimes timing is everything mm, great timing. probably wasn't great timing for you no it was I probably would have been better off being involved in the um, supplement scandal and having 12 months off and go, going to the Greek <laughs> islands with the rest of the players but such was my timing but I knew that I was taking a risk and I could have gone to I could have gone to North Melbourne I had a few chats with GWS and um, a couple of other clubs, but nothing really was going to eventuate there. So the the two options were North and Essendon because I thought that they would have been the best two clubs suited to me to win a flag. Um, Rang Clarko, didn't hear anything back, still waiting for him to <laughs> reply to my voicemail. So I didn't think that was an option. Um, and North um, were in a, a window where they were potentially pushing for a premiership, a top four position, um, made a prelim. And Essendon were in a spot where I thought that they had an enormous amount of upside if they could get this scandal uh, and put this scandal behind them. And there were no guarantees. So I spoke to Herdy and I was 98% signed at North Melbourne and then had a meeting with Herdy and Adrian Dodoro. And um, I just got lost in, in Herdy's blue eyes and, and golden blonde locks. And, and that was it from there. Uh, but he But he said... Look, there's no guarantees, but we're 95% sure that these players are going to be found not guilty. And we went through the, the list, put the 20 best 22 up on the board, and it looked it looked pretty good. And, I, and we started the year really well. We played against Sydney, round one, my first game. We were 40 points up uh, against the grand finalists from last year. The players coming off no pre-season, and we ended up getting run over the top. And then we beat Hawthorne uh, the next year. Who were who were the premier? So, uh, sorry, the next week who were the premier from the year before? So I thought, well, we're onto a good thing. And then, unfortunately, the appeal came, and that was the that was the end. It bottomed out after that, and the players just couldn't go through um, anymore. Particularly Joe. Tell us about what happened when the appeal came through. Well, there were we we're at the club, and basically all the players just just got up and left, and then um, we all gathered at at someone's house. It might have been David Myers at his house and had a few drinks and sat around and there was sort of, um, it was like an inevitability that that, that was the end of um, of everything. And I sort of knew at that stage, well, I'm in some strife here. I've come here for uh, a chance to win a premiership and I'm going to end up playing with um, a bunch of top-up players in the end. And they didn't get suspended until the end of 2015 the players leading into 2016 but I just knew and um, I just knew that they couldn't like physically and mentally go through and keep playing at that level after um, so much that had happened to, to some of those guys. 
So you played 31 games for the Bombers over two years. What do you? How do you look back on your time at the club? I think we had three wins. So, um, well, I had played in three wins. So on field, it wasn't obviously ideal, but off field, I found it such a a great welcoming club to my my family, all Bomber supporters now, not my immediate family, like my kids. Love the Bombers. They cry when they lose. So I don't know if it was at that time where they started to get a little bit older or it was just the way that Essendon treated uh, me and my family was, was just unbelievable. And um, they st- I still get invited to, to all the functions back there. And just, there's so many coterie groups and so many people that, that I felt that just cared for me and my family when I got there. So And all the guys were brilliant. I only had 12 months with a lot of them. But then the other players that came in as well, for that year that we played together, it was a tough environment because we were losing every week. But the, um, there was still a fair bit of spirit around the place, and there was a still a, it was still a really enjoyable time considering I only played thirty games and won sort of three or four games. There it was I look back on them on it with really fond memories, and um, I'm thankful that the club gave me an opportunity, and I really think that Essendon are my club over the Dogs. Yeah, Which is strange. That's very interesting, yeah. Well, it's, not, it's because of how it finished at the Dogs. Yeah, yeah, of to course. How it finished yeah. At and unfortunately, a lot of times things, you know, especially halfway through a career, you know, you don't leave on the best possible note. Yeah, not, many you leave. No. not many get to. Not many get to leave with a premiership around their neck saying, no, I'm talking about. No, but it's, it's, always, it's always hard, you know, like because you do, you've got to go, okay, I'm now taking off. You know this force field, and now I'm going into this battle over here, and I'm I'm now you know an Essendon person. But I, I think you going to Essendon at the time when all the turmoil was being you know flipped on its head, and and the world was crashing down um, in the Essendon world. Someone like yourself would have been so important because you got a different take on things. You can have a laugh. You're a bit more relaxed. So you were probably a real key ingredient to actually going in there and like. Hey, you've got to lift the spirits. So this sun's going to come up tomorrow. We're going to charge on. We're still going to find a way. So it's it was, and I reckon they probably recognise that um, when they look back and go, Adam Kearney. Yeah, do you know what? He didn't play a hundred games for us, but I'll tell you what, he added so much to our group. Um, and people are that are so important, you know. So there, there's reasons why you get invited back because they all seem us like you. Yeah, well, that's good. That's, <laughs> I mean, it's nice to hear and it was tough. I think Wusha was really good as well with that group. I mean, he just stayed positive the whole time and he knew what um, what he was in for too for that for that period. So I think he was great for, for that group as well. And it, it is, it's hard when you're losing every week because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is – um, down in the dumps and then you try and bring yourself back up to play the next week so yeah it's important to to be positive and have a bit of a laugh and and a joke at times because it can get pretty bleak yeah absolutely and, and like football clubs are hard when, when you're losing um you, no you're trying your hardest you know and and then unfortunately people go into little survival mode so they protect their own little patch it's it's tough like football clubs are tough but they're also got great spirit so you can, you know, bring everyone together. We're all in this together. You can have little wins along the way, even though you're not getting the four points. So that's what makes football clubs great, you know, and that's why when you finally have that win, you know, the the emotion, you know, they're, they're things that you can treasure for the rest of your life. You get a lovely farewell at the MCG on the final season of your career in 2016. You go around in the car, but <laughs> in a little cruel twist of fate, the grand finalists <laughs> that day included your former club, the Bulldogs. Yeah. Walk us through that. 
Well, it was good in a way because I actually got to say goodbye to the Western Bulldogs fans who are unbelievable. A lot of them are filthy at me now because I go for Essendon over the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so they all hate me now. But at the time uh, when I was in the back of the Hilux uh, with Brian, um, believe it or not, we, we um, had a farewell and, and our kids got along really well. So, so that was good and uh, it was a great memory. But after that, it was bittersweet. You go into the long room and have a couple of beers and see all the the all-time greats and then sat down and watched the game. Scotty West over my shoulder and and Libba Senior around and it was one of those days where it got her halfway through the last quarter and I was just, I like everyone, I was just floored that the dogs were going to win a grand final and we talk about timing, me going to Essendon wasn't great and me leaving the dogs wasn't great because who would have thought two years later that they'd go on and um, have that run uh, to win a flag. So I I have described it um, as a bit like seeing your ex-wife win Powerball. You put you put in so many so many hard years with them, and then they get to reap the rewards after that. So it was a bit like that. Like I was so wrapped for players like Pico and and Boydie and and all the guys who I'd played so much footy with who got close um, to see them out there winning a flag was unbelievable. But there was a a small part of me that was like, I hate you all. Who were you barracking for? <laughs> I was barracking for the dogs. Yeah, well, Sydney have, have had their time. There's, there's <laughs> I wanted to see them win, but it was it was sort of it was upsetting in a way as well. Yep. Yeah, think. and rightly so. You know, it's a bit like it, Brett Deledio. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's uh, you just don't know, and, and it's the same with Brett. It's like, hang on, if you you hang around a few more years. You just don't know if you're going to be playing anyway or, you know, you're getting a game in that side or, you know, mentally you've you've switched off and said, no, nah, I don't have one more year, I'm out of here. So who knows? But you have a look at it now. You're now, you say, an Essendon person. They, they're including you. You feel very much a part of it. That's going to last for the rest of your life. So there's a, there's a nice connection there mm. as well. And that's something you obviously wouldn't have if you, if you stay put. Very true. As time goes by, do you think you'll build up that relationship with the dogs again? I hope so. And I've already spoken to I've spoken to a meet Baines and I've spoken to people at the club. And it's it's not like, it's not like I'm bitter or angry at the Western Bulldogs. It's just how I finished up and then um, what happened with Essendon and how I felt so welcome there that I have that connection with Essendon. I don't hate the Western Bulldogs. I'm not I'm not angry at the Western Bulldogs. It was what was it seven years ago now? So if I was still harbouring any sort of resentment about that. I mean, what does that say about me as a person? So it's not that I dislike the Western Bulldogs. I, I, I still like them winning and I certainly like the, the AFLW side when they're winning as well. It's just I have that stronger connection to the Bombers, whereas a lot of Bulldog supporters who abuse me on social media think that I'm angry or bitter about that. <laughs> That's not the case at all. It's just that I prefer um, Essendon because of that connection when I finished. And, and when you look at the shake-up, you know, you've got your leadership group saying, no, we're out. You've got a captain saying, oh, we're out. We've lost our way. Um, so what did the club do then? They actually had a good look at themselves in the mirror and said, we need to fix a lot of areas. We need to get things right. There's a lot of areas that are lacking. And then it ends up giving them premiership, premiership success a few years later. But if that didn't happen, if that drags on another year or two, yep. they don't have that premiership. Well, There's no way that happens. Yeah, so well, I sat down with um, Peter Gordon before I was traded um, at the end of the season, and I outlined all of the issues that the young players were feeling, that the leaders were feeling, um, and about uh, the coaching situation. And I said, "Look, this can't, this can't go on. It's not working. We've got younger players who don't want to go to training. 
We've got younger players who just don't um, are too scared to speak up in meetings and, and don't want to be there. Um, we've got senior players who who think it's not working. And I outlined all these issues to Peter Gordon um, at the end of the season, and it didn't get back to me. And that's that's one of the reasons why I was why I was angry because and and he said, look, thank you so much for for outlying all these issues, we're going to do something about it. And then I didn't hear back. So that was one of the reasons why I was so angry about what happened. And then I was traded after that. So that, they were the issues. And they ended up getting... They ended so you, up should have, you should have complained, you know? Yeah, I should have just kept because, quiet. Well, right, I should, <laughs> if, I did, if I just kept quiet and said, look, okay, I'm not going to say anything here, the group would have gone through another year and, and I would have played in the VFL. Ryan Griffin probably would have still been at the club. Sean Higgins would have left anyway, I think, as a free agent. But that's what what, what might have happened. If we all stayed quiet and did nothing about it, then uh, the coach might have stayed there. And then, you're right, it might have been an, another poor year in 2015. It might have been another poor year in 2016. Luke Beveridge doesn't come in. I'm not saying that I am the reason the Western Bulldogs won the premiership, but I'm pretty close. But you got things moving, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, no, no, that, that's But true. that's why I was angry, because I poured my heart out about what was happening. I knew I was going out on a limb and fell on my sword because of it. But in the end, it was the, the best thing that happened to the club. And can I just tell you, we, Hawthorne were in a similar position where we had lost our way. So I had a list and I can still remember there's 30 things on the list and I gave it to Ian Dicker. Um, and I said, here's areas that we need to try and fix. We need to get better at. And do you know what? He ticked off every one of them. He went through it thoroughly. And then, unfortunately, he wasn't there when the Hawthorne started to win their premierships, but he, he was the reason. Like, that's why, yeah, ask Ian Dicker, ask me about Ian Dicker. I just bowed yeah. down because he, he's like, right, let's get this place going. So those unsung heroes behind closed doors or people that don't really sort of know exactly what's going on when there has been a bit of movement. We see Carlton at the moment, they're trying to have a review um, you know, and they're like, okay, what do we need to do? We need to shake up this place. We're not making finals. Do we need to lose some people? I think that's I think that's the easy way out. You can just go, oh, we're going to try and get rid of a few people here and there or yeah, whatever. It doesn't solve the underlying issue. No, it's like, well, no, you've, you know, when, when you look at Carlton, they've come from being a, a basket case a few years ago and they've actually made huge improvement. So is there a lot wrong there? Mm. Uh, the only thing is they're not winning all the time. But they're not that far off. So, you know, footy clubs are, are different spaces and different places. And sometimes it's braver to go, listen, I'm going to step course. away. And tum- sometimes it's braver to go, nah, we've got people, let's go. Can you remember anything that was on that list? Oh, there, there was plenty. Three-year you know, deal from Shane. No, even like you do talk about, you know, Akamata's doing weights and the roof falling down. Like our facilities, you know, weren't, we weren't professional enough, you know. Um, and, and just the way we prepared, you know, um, physically, um, you know, just the, even the runners we would train in, stuff like that. You know, we were having lots of foot injuries, um, obviously on-field um, you know, just trying to be more professional to try and find some money to, you know, uh, I think on that list was also we need to f- get some players. We, we need, you know, a ruckman. We need, you know, some players, but we didn't have money. <laughs> so it's hard to get players to come to your footy club when, you know, they know this, the club's struggling and there's, there's no money floating around because obviously the players deserve to earn a living um, so they can go and buy a few acres when they finish footy down <laughs> In a country property and, and really sort of, you know, live life the way they want to live it. 
Well, we'll let Adam Cooney do exactly that and go and dominate Channel 7 after we finish with a couple of questions. Hard-hitting ones? Oh, no doubt. Coming from Quinny, though, will we? Best sledge you ever heard on the field? Uh, Probably from yourself. Stephen Milne actually sledged me one day (laughs) with his lisp, (laughs) and he said to me, I'd rather be dead than wed. (laughs) (laughs) Referring to my hair, and I said, I I don't know, not sure what, was that English? (laughs) <laughs> and you know, I reckon his teammates one. would love you coming back with that. Is that English? Uh, that's quite funny. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. And Gary Ablett just gave me, hit me between the eyes one day. I think I said something about, why would you go to this team after we went to the Gold Coast and um, for the cash, left for the money? And he just like just ragged me for about five minutes about how I've been such a disappointment in my career. And you know, he said, oh, you, you know, I used to love watching you play, but geez, you've been a disappointment since you've won the Brownlow. And I just walked <laughs> off. Like, oh, sorry, Gary. <laughs> You wouldn't have kissed his head at the brown life for you. Knew he was going to say that. Sweaty head too, it was. <laughs> Best spray you've ever heard from a coach? Uh, it was a rocket one. Yeah, where he dropped the dropped the C bomb to me ten times, and it's hard to go past his weekly sprays with with Brian. We used to hit him up every time we were losing. He would be the main one because, and then he'd play well after that. So he made the mistake of after copying a big spray of responding and playing well. You go the other <laughs> yeah. way, and then the coach leaves you alone. He he had a great career at Hawthorne, didn't he, Brian? He did. Yeah, he uh, he did a great job. So three flags, three Pete, one of Norm Smith. Yeah, didn't kick the ball as much. No, he just handballed it off. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> yeah, most annoying teammate. Most annoying teammate. Ben Harrison is the most annoying teammate. So this is only p- purely for the fact that I signed a new contract, bought a brand new Jeep, and he thought it would be a good idea to take my keys and hide it. So I'd thought I'd think that it would, was stolen after I got um, out of um, training and went home. And he grabbed my new Jeep, went to uh, hide it, reversed it straight back into a pole. <laughs> Yeah. And didn't tell me about it. Oh, didn't he didn't tell, tell me you. until about three months later. Oh. Didn't stump up the cash for it. Oh, Just come on, Ben. First my brand new <laughs> Jeep until a He's a, a good fella, Ben. Um, it's he, an interesting prank. He, he yeah. owes you. So, okay, you obviously played at Essendon, played at uh, the Bulldogs. Who, Who's the, the best player that you loved playing with, you know? I Doesn't love, necessarily have to be the best player, but someone that you just thought, oh, I love running out on yeah. the footy field with him. I loved playing with Ryan Griffin, not because he's just he's one of my best mates, but he had that patch where he was just unstoppable, mm. and he just as soon as you, as soon as he got the footy, you just knew that something good was going to happen. Um, from a courage point of view, it's hard to split Daniel Cross and Cal Ward. I reckon in, in his first game, I remember Wardy just steaming back with the flight and getting absolutely hammered, and we thought, well, we've got a special player here. And, and Daniel Cross was one who uh, wasn't the quickest guy, but he put himself in some really vulnerable positions and um, spots that I never went in my career. And a hard Shut worker, to think yeah. About it. He was a hard worker. Yeah, he certainly was one of the hardest that I've ever played with. Well, Adam, you had a wonderful career. We greatly appreciate you coming to have a chat today. Pleasure, gentlemen. Adam Cooney, hopefully you've enjoyed this edition of Inside 50. G'day punters for the chance to win a ticket for you and 10 mates into the Tab Superbox. The magic code word this week is TACKLE. Full terms and conditions in the show notes. There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals all in the one bet to get bigger odds. 
It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL same game multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help 1800 858 858.